So let's take our Bibles and let's turn to Romans 6. We're discussing a, a situation that may seem of controversy to you when you read your Bible. And the reason is, is because overwhelmingly we've understood that eternal life is a free gift that God gives at the moment of salvation. And we have many verses to back that up, and that is absolutely undisputed. There is no argument there whatsoever. But one of the greatest understandings we could ever come to is understanding that a key to good Bible study is to go where the author takes you. To not bring a preconceived idea into the text, but allow for the text to give you your theology and how you ought to think about him. And so with that, we read a verse like Romans chapter 6, verse 22 and 23. Let's read those. It says, But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, what? Eternal life. Then we look at 23 as a summary statement. For the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It is important that we recognize that verse 22 is espousing eternal life as a reward to be earned. Now you say, wait a second, does that mean that eternal life is not a free gift? No, that's not what I'm saying at all. I'm saying that we can't run the risk of pigeonholing a phrase like eternal life as only having one meaning all the time. The text will not allow you to do that. So I know that we had some disruption going on with our live stream last week. I'm sure the people at home are thoroughly confused because they didn't totally get what was going on last week. So let's give a rough summary. John 3.16, God loves the world, God gave His Son. You believe in Him, you will not perish, but you have eternal life. Is that a free gift? Yes, it is. And it's received at the moment that you believe because you've heard the gospel, you respond in faith. John 5, 24, most assuredly I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Is that a free gift? It absolutely is. But when we take a moment and we look at Romans chapter 6 and look at 22, let's walk through it real quick and then we'll move forward. But now, having been freed from sin, And that is the sin nature that dwells in us. It is in the singular there. We've been freed from that. And enslaved to God, you derive your benefit. And the idea there is fruit, productivity. Your benefit resulting in sanctification, set-apartness, or we would also say holiness. Holiness comes about as being slaves of God because we are dead to sin. And the outcome, notice that it is a future result that comes from holiness or sanctification. That end result is eternal life. This speaks of something to be earned. So if you are a believer in Christ right now, you have eternal life full and free, period justification is a done deal. You do not grow in your justification. When you believed in Christ, immediately, done. Forgiven of sins, having eternal life, possessing that, that can never be taken away from you whatsoever. But the way that Paul uses eternal life in the book of Romans, he's talking about a richness or a higher quality of life to be earned in the life to come. And that only happens by faithfulness. Now immediately everybody puts on this works mentality and has this idea of I better do better and I better try harder. If that is your mentality, you quickly become a legalist and a law keeper. Romans 6, the reason why we've spent so much time is because he gives us the formula for Christian growth. The very first thing is, is I need to know that I'm dead to sin. So when sin comes knocking on my door and wants to come play with me, I say, I'm not home. You're dead to me. And you send temptation 
away. Why? Because that's who you used to be. It's not who you are now in Christ. We're also told that we need to consider or reckon ourselves dead to sin, but alive to God through Jesus Christ. I don't need to entertain sin because I'm dead to it. Instead, I've been made alive with Jesus. When he died on the cross, I died with him. His blood forgave my sins. And now my walking with him is a question of the work of the cross in dealing with my sin. The indwelling principle that makes me want to sins and the cross deals with that. And so now I have a choice. Now that I am a spiritual being, now that my spirit is no longer dead, but God has made it alive, and we're going to talk about the breakdown of spirit, soul, and body next week and how that works together. But now that that is a reality in my life, I now have a choice. I can either choose to operate in the old man flesh patterns that I used to walk according to the ways of this world and according to Satan and his plan of how he's orchestrated things, or... I can now present the members of my body to God as instruments to be used for his righteous purposes. In fact, I hope that my, by me beating this horse to death and dragging another horse in and beating it to death about the same thing, that your prayer life has been changed to, Lord, I am dead to sin, I am alive to you in Christ Jesus my Lord, and I'm presenting my body for your use today for your righteous purposes. Use me for your glory. And I guarantee you, if you come to him with that mentality, understanding your identity in Christ and understanding that he can use your body for his righteous purposes and he is the one who does the work through you, guess what? Holiness happens. That's how it happens. It is God wrought within us. Now I say all this in order to lead you to verse 22 because the end goal of holiness is it gives way to a higher quality of life in the life to come or let me say this you will have exceeding rich richness in the kingdom to come and this is everything that we're going to talk about the next two it's probably going to take us three sundays so everyone raise your right hand and you know what for good measure put your left hand on your bible i solemnly swear that I will stick with the scriptures regardless of where they take me. I'm ready to go and I am verbally and mentally and spiritually putting on my seatbelt for the ride. In Jesus' name, amen. See, you didn't know you were praying, did you? There we go. Turn with me to John chapter 4. I'm going to try to stay six feet away from everybody. And I want you to look, starting in verse 31. You're familiar with this scene. The woman at the well. Or you probably know her as the Samaritan woman. She's a woman of questionable heritage. In fact, we find out that she's a woman of a questionable lifestyle. She is a woman who has been born from having a Gentile and a Jew as her parents. And this was considered insanely taboo in this first century time. You've probably heard this before, but bear with me again. If you're familiar with your geography of the region of Israel, to the east of Jerusalem, down in Judea, you have the Dead Sea. Running into the Dead Sea is the Jordan River. Up in the top is the Sea of Galilee, which is to the east of Galilee. But in between the regions of Galilee and Judea is an area called Samaria. And that is where the half-breeds lived. And the Jews, in all their legalistic, racist indignation, decided that if they wanted to travel from south to north or from north to south, that they would actually go over to the body of water and cross the river and walk up the opposite side to completely avoid Samaria. And then they would cross over again to get into the region that they had intended to travel to. 
This is how thick their racism was. They hated Samaritans. So in keeping with the love of God rather than the commandments of people, Jesus decides he's going to sit down and have conversation with the Samaritan woman. And not only that, he's going to have a conversation with her, and he finds out a lot about her lifestyle. She's a lady who's been around the block one too many times. And in a very kind and loving way, Jesus calls attention to this. But what's interesting is, is when the disciples show up. Now, these guys are a class act, are they not? We're familiar with them. We sometimes ridicule them, especially Peter. We want to reach in the text and kind of backhand him a little bit. And then later that day, we recognize we're Peter. That's how it works for me. But I want to start in verse 31 because they've been in town. They were weirded out they had to go through Samaria anyway, but they went into town to get something to eat. They came back to to give something to Jesus because he stayed out there. Verse 31, meanwhile, the disciples were urging him saying, Rabbi, eat. The woman has gone back into town. That had to be really awkward because she said to everybody, I met a man who told me everything I ever did. Now, for whatever guys that she was shacking up with over this period of time, I bet they got real uncomfortable real quick. Okay? But he says here, Rabbi, eat, verse 32, but he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. Now, it's always like Jesus to not give you a straight answer about something and to make you upset because he's not just saying, here's what it is, right? But watch how he unfolds this. So the disciples were saying to one another, no one brought him anything to eat, did he? Jesus said to them, my food, pay attention, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish, to complete his work. What is Jesus' purpose in life? To do God's will and to finish it. To do God's will and to finish it. Let me go ahead and segue by means of application. What is your purpose in life? Fits in two categories. To do God's will and to finish it. To finish it. To do it, presently speaking, and to see it through to the end. To bring it to finality. I'm going to say this because I'm, 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 I'm really afraid, I'll be honest with you, I'm genuinely afraid that the end of this sermon, even though I'm going to end on a positive note, is going to bother you and unsettle you and jar you. But that's why you solemnly swore to stick with it. Okay? God's desire for all of us is what He has in mind. Every one of us. He didn't just save us to save us. He didn't just pay for our sins to set us free. It's not like he uncaged an animal and he was like, go, go, butterfly, go, fly to your heart's content. That's not what God has done. God has set us free and said, apart from me, your life has no meaning. And so I'm going to give you meaning Because your work in the midst of this temporal situation is going to give way to eternal fruit. And that's what God wants for you. That's what he wants for me. In fact, I would say that some of our most frustrating times is we find out that God wants it more badly for us than we want it for ourselves. And he knows what's best, does he not? This is why obedience, when commanded, especially in the New Testament for the church, is never to be looked at as something that is cumbersome and weighty. It's actually opportunity. But for some reason, we've grown up in a carefully stitched together system to where we think that if anything is asked of us, it's immediately a burden. If God asks it, is it a burden or is it a blessing? See, there's a lot to say about how the mentality of the heart needs to be changed. 
Jesus has revealed something fantastic to us, and I don't want you to lose it, because everything we're going to talk about is going to spring from this idea. Let's look at his words again. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. Notice it's voluntarily submitting himself under the headship of the Father, and to accomplish his work, his work, his work. It's not about your work. His work. Now watch how this unfolds. We used this passage yesterday in evangelism training. By the way, if you didn't sign up, come talk to me. We'll set up another one. I want to get everybody in this church trained in evangelism. Every single person. Raise your hand if you were here yesterday for evangelism training. If you liked it, clap. That sounds borderline robust. It's not going to hurt you. I would love to set another one up. So everybody needs to be trained to share their faith. So let me know. We'll set up another one. Follow me here. Verse 35. Jesus tells them, do not say, there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look on the fields. Look out. They are white for harvest. There are people ready to be reaped right now. Now watch this, because we get hung up on that verse and we think that's the main idea here. No, it's the means to an end. Let's find the end. Verse 36, already he who reaps is receiving, what's the word? Wages. This is a very interesting Greek word. It comes from the word mystos. It's mystone. My Greek is awesome with a Kentucky accent. But it's the idea of recompense or that you're getting paid for work done. The person who is involved in reaping in this harvest is going to get paid. Or we would might say it this way as it's sometimes translated. There is a reward waiting for the work when we invest ourselves. Now, if we're talking about the idea of coming into an evangelism situation with somebody and we're seeing people come to faith in Christ and now it's our responsibility to disciple them as Matthew 28 has commanded us from Jesus' mouth, the idea is that our involvement in the work of evangelism and discipling people will actually receive a paycheck in the life to come. Jesus will sign it himself. Now watch this, because this is what we're talking about, what eternal life is in the end as a reward to be earned. It says here, he who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering, what's the word? Fruit for life eternal. Everybody see that? For out ahead, for what's to come, for what it's going to look like for us in the coming kingdom. Our investment now gives way to an enhanced state of life eternal. Or let me say it this way. Our time on earth is training time to prepare us for reigning time with Christ when the kingdom comes. That's what it is to take advantage of the abundant Life, isn't it an experience to have now? Yes, when we're obeying the Father, when we're doing His will and seeing it to completion, who else lives like that? In fact, I would say probably one of the reasons why people aren't attracted to the church, and let's be honest, evangelism would be much easier if people were more attracted to the church. But maybe one of the reasons why people aren't more attracted to the church in America right now is because the church in America is not concerned about doing his will and accomplishing his work. They're not concerned with seeing it through to the end. We've stopped caring about God's agenda because we've got our own. And let's be honest, we dare not be bothered with inconvenience. To be perturbed is to be put out. I don't think indifferent about this. This is the very essence of the American dream. Right? I just want my 2.5 kids, my two-story house, two-car garage, picket fence. 
I don't find God in that equation. I don't find his will. I don't find his work. Now, am I saying that I'm not proud to be an American? Not saying that at all. I praise God for what we have in this country. But let's not make the mistake that this is where I live. Because I don't. I'm passing through. And I'm not worried about accumulating rewards now. If I store up these now, moths will get it, thieves will steal it, and it's going to rust. Has anybody ever noticed what a strange thing rust is? I know that seems odd. And what you have to do to get rid of it. What does Jesus tell us? No. Store up treasure in heaven. Where moths can't get it, thieves cannot steal it, and rust ain't even found there. Aren't you glad no rust is in heaven? Praise God. While you're here, be about His will and see through His work. If the lives of Christians in America were purposed unto that end, and understanding, and this is the reason why we're going slowly through this, understanding the full-orbed grace of salvation that's been delivered to the believer in Christ because of what He's done, you couldn't keep people out of this church. You couldn't keep them out. Why? Because God is moving. And people want to be there. People know their lives are messed up. People know their lives are broken. People know they've got problems. They don't need anybody looking down on them. They don't need anybody calling them out and accusing them, scoffing at them, turning their nose up. They don't need it. They need to know the gospel to bring them into a relationship with God so they can understand what budding fellowship is with Him as He leads them on a path of maturity. But it's got to start here before it's ever going to start out there. So if that's the case, we need to watch What is going on here? Verse 36, Already who who reaps is receiving wages and is gathering fruit for life eternal. Why? So that he who sows, the person who came along and planted the seeds, and he who reaps may rejoice together. Whether you came along in somebody's life and you sowed the seeds of the gospel in their life, or whether somebody came along and when they shared the gospel, they saw the harvest come in because the person believed, doesn't matter. Both people played a role, and both people are going to high-five one another in the life to come and rejoice and worship God that they got to participate in His work. It's going to be worship. Don't raise your hand, but how many of us have a bad view of heaven? Man, I'm going to wear a choir robe. and It's not going to be one of those swaying, snapping choirs either. It's going to be really like, crazy, oh God. We really think that heaven's going to be a terrible place? Oh, man. I don't think we're going to have any heads left. I think heaven's going to blow our heads clean off our bodies. That's why we've got to have glorified bodies. Put them back together again. I guarantee you, my brains are going to fall out of my ears when I see Jesus Christ. I can't wait for that day. Not much there anyway, so whatever. Now watch how this moves forward. Verse 37. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. Verse 38. I sent you to reap that which you have not labored. Others have labored. So notice, he's saying to the disciples particularly, you're going to see a harvest here that you didn't necessarily put in all the work for, but you still get to participate in the opportunity. So notice what he says, others have labored and you have entered into their labor. What's the goal? That it gives way to fruit going to life eternal. Everybody see that that's got works involved? And it's something that's out ahead. Everybody see that? Yes? We, we, are we in agreement? Okay, great. Go where, the, go where the Scripture takes you. Now turn over to John 12. And let's see another place where John uses life eternal here. Because that's going to help give some clarity to this concept as well. Now maybe I need to do more research on the beginning of this. We're going to start in verse 20. I wasn't so much worried about why a Greek is asking certain questions about seeing Jesus and why we're told that Philip came from Bethsaida. Maybe there's a heavy 
Greek presence there up in Galilee? I, I don't know. I didn't study it. I'll just be honest with you because I'm not worried about it. I'm worried about what Jesus has to say in this passage because he reveals something very interesting. Walk with me. Verse 20. Now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast, the feast they're preparing for is Passover. That's mentioned in chapter 12, verse 1. These men came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So Philip came and told Andrew. I think that's funny. You want to see Jesus? Let me go see what Andrew thinks about this. Now, it's interesting because Andrew must have not known what to do because Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. Why there needed to be two? Good grief, who knows. Verse 23, And Jesus answered them and saying, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, if you have done a reading through of John before, you know that he would say such things as, My time has not yet come. Now is not the hour kind of thing. But notice here, this changes chronologically. Now is the time for the Son of Man to be glorified. So in the, in the overall scope of the book, something is changing here. And he says something that follows up that we all need to take note of. Watch this. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 24, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and, what's the word? Dies. It remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now we stop here. If we were to stop our Bible study here, we go, oh, Jesus is talking about his crucifixion. That's what he's talking about here. The problem is, is we stopped at this verse when there's more to go. But we get the concept, right? A seed must die if fruit is to come. Yes? Okay. In fact, in some of the unearthing of the graves found in the Egyptian tombs, they found that some of these pharaohs were were buried with seeds. They were buried with all kinds of things, you know, chariots, horses. We talked about that, right? Jimmy Hoffa's body, that stuff, it's all in there. But somebody found up to three to 4,000 seeds that were in one pharaoh's tomb. Guess what? None of them have sprouted anything. Why? Because those seeds never really died. They never went into the earth. They never died. They never gave way to much fruit. They were still preserved seeds doing nothing. Now watch what happens. How does Jesus apply this? He who loves his life loses it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. Is this a fun verse or what? Is this speaking about Jesus' crucifixion? No, it's not. In fact, we find that the idea of the seed going into the ground and perishing and giving way to much fruit, he's using this opportunity now to talk to his disciples about something important about how they live their lives. Now let's break this down real quick because immediately we come across a phrase of hating our lives. Does that mean hating yourself? No. Does that mean be willing to commit suicide for the glory of the Lord? What have you been reading? No! No! God doesn't advocate that. But notice it does talk about our will, our agenda, how we feel about certain situations, and how we've learned how to think about the world, all that needs to be fixed. Why is that? Because he uses this interesting little word there. Everybody see the word L-I-F-E. Everybody see that? You have an NASB translation. You're going to find a little number next to there. And so you, you wiggle over to your margin and you see that it says literally what? Soul. S-O-U-L. Market. Why they have chosen to translate this as soul or life, because we're going to see where it's going to interchange here is a mystery. It's the same word throughout. Now, why do we bring attention to this? Because the soul is an immaterial part that we all have. We're going to expound on this more later, but for the sake of brevity, let me give it to you. It's made up of our mind, how we think, our will, what we purpose to do in life, and our emotions, how we feel about everything going on around us. 
And so with that in mind, think about what Jesus is saying when we understand it more as he would have meant it when he spoke it. He who loves his soul loses it. Loses it? Does that mean he's going to hell? No. He's already talking to believing people. Believing people have the free gift of eternal life. It can never be taken away, ever. But the idea is, is if you love your way of being, your way of thinking, your way of feeling, the way that the world has taught you to do these things and has brought you up in the care of its bosom, you will lose what it is to truly have life. You will never know what true life is about. Or let's break it down a little bit easier. If I'm so busy living my life, I can never let Christ live his life in me. Does that make sense? It's all about my agenda. It's all about my wants. It's about my wants that I call needs in order to make you feel bad for me, but they're really just wants because I'm a selfish person. It's all about how I want things to be done. About how when I don't get my way, I throw an adult temper tantrum. Now, none of us know people like that. So we frown upon other people who act that way because we're holier than that, right? No. Amen. I'm glad you got that mask on, Jim. Moving on. He who loves his soul, his life, loses it. And he who hates his life, notice the location. Where? In this world. Guys, don't miss this. Because what we're going to study over the next two or three Sundays is either going to completely bypass you and you're going to think it's insignificant. I'm going to tell you this. It's the most significant thing a Christian could ever learn in their lives. If we decide that we're going to recognize that the way that we've been trained by Satan's world system is completely incongruent with God's design for his purpose and fulfilling his work in our lives. If we recognize that, we will actually experience what it is to have life abundantly eternal in the life to come. It is a greater grade of eternal life. Are you saying the people that don't do jack diddly are going to have nothing and torment and all that? No. I'm saying that they're still going to be in the presence of the king, and that's going to be amazing itself. What I'm telling you is that Jesus Christ wants more for the believer than usually what the believer wants for themselves. And he gives, and he gives, and he gives, and he invites us, take it, take it, take it, and he tells us how to lay hold of it. He wants you to have a lot. Is this a sermon about you? No, it's about everything that pours out of the work of the cross. Grace is like pancakes. Stack them to the sky. It just keeps getting better and better. And ooh, and there's butter on that one. Better and better and better in syrup. It's amazing. Guys, God doesn't just love us. He wants to bless us. He wants to give to us. He says, you know what? If you trust me with not just your eternal destiny, but the continuance of your earthly life, I'm going to blow your mind. I'm going to lavish riches on you that I can't even describe to you now because there are no words in any language that could ever encapsulate that reality. And here's what he's telling us up front. Pay attention. Your life, as you've been trained according to Satan's system, is not worth living. It's not worth continuing on in that way. Why? Because through the cross, a new life has been delivered. We've now been born again. That imagery is intentional. Because it's a brand new life. Remember, it's not a reforming of the old life. It is a brand new life. He understood our old life wasn't worth living. I want to give you a life worth living. If you trust me, you will live like no one else has ever lived. Doesn't Dave Ramsey say that about money? He stole that from Jesus. (laughs) Jesus meant it about how we live our lives. How we conduct ourselves. Choices that we make. Things that we're involved in. And what he's saying is, is the agenda that you've settled for 
will not work in saving your soul. He says here, and he who hates his life, his soul in this world, will keep it to life eternal. Verse 26, if anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. In other words, where God is working, where Jesus is doing his thing, you'll be there too. It says here, if, 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 that's a contingency, if anyone serves me, the Father will what? Honor him. Do you realize that God wants to honor you? How incredible is that? I'm like, why? That's one to leave you scratching your head the rest of your life. Why in the world would he want to honor me? He doesn't honor us because there's something good about us. He honors us because we've said, Lord, your will be done. Because now we become such objects of his grace that grace is exuding from us and infecting everything around us. Why? Because I'm about his purpose and I'm about his work. That's what I'm about. That's what my life is about. Does that mean that you need to quit what you're doing and go to seminary and become a pastor or a theologian or professor? No. That means that where you are right now, God is receiving all the glory. That where you are right now, the ways that this world has trained us into accepting sin is no longer on the table for negotiation. It's gone. It's not an option anymore. We've been called to a higher standard. It's recognizing that God has better for us. Now with that in mind, you can see how this idea of life, when the context speaks about works, it's talking about something out ahead to be earned. We see that it's the idea of rejecting the ways of the enemy in our lives, recognizing that it has our soul, our mind, will, and emotions in play, which is the issue that needs to be redeemed. And we're going to talk about that in two weeks. But we find out that works are in play, and and it simply starts with just a submission to what God wants. Now, let's turn to our favorite passage, Mark 8. We'll back up a little bit to get a running start. Mark 8, starting verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed, and after three days rise again. Everybody remember who his audience is? The twelve, right? because he's getting ready to have an interesting interchange with Peter that we just love to see. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Peter's always got something to say, right? He says here, but turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter. He said, get behind me, Satan. And we often draw a lot of emphasis to this word, Satan. The word means adversary. Not that he is the devil in fleshly form or anything crazily like that. But look, Jesus explains it for us so that we don't get off track. He says, get behind me, Satan, for, here's the explanation, you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but whose? Isn't it interesting to see the connection that Jesus uses the word for adversary and connects Peter's mental state and trying to deter him from the cross with the way that people think. Everybody see that? Because the way we think is a worldly form of thinking. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own what? Understanding. Why? Because it ain't happening here. The world has trained us in a certain way, and if the mind needs anything, it needs renewal from God's Word. God's Word is the raw material that the Holy Spirit uses to transform us more and more into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ. It's important for us to understand how God does this. The Word outside of us, the Holy Spirit inside of us, fuse them together, and we become a powder keg. That's what we want to be seeing. That's when we're living out God's purposes and accomplishing his work in these things. Now watch with me. Walk. Verse 34, and he summoned the crowd and his disciples and he said to them, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must number one, deny himself. 
Now, don't get tripped up on this because this is completely consistent with what we've seen. Your ways, your thoughts, your responses, your emotions, do away with those. Get rid of them. They're done. That's the old man. That's the old you. That's the one that was crucified with Christ. And it's no coincidence that though that's a negative command, he actually gives us a positive one next. And it totally coincides with what we see as the effectual tool that does sanctification work in the believer's life. Deny yourself and take up your what? Cross. We are dead to sin. But the great struggle we have is that the soul is dying to sin. And I don't mean dying, let me sin, let me sin, let me sin. That's the flesh pattern coming out. It's the idea of coming to a place where sin is no longer an acceptable option. You can no longer live without hypocritical conflict cowering over you for making decisions that are more in line with the world rather than with God. Why? Because the Spirit's doing work in your life. Because the Word of God is changing you. Because this is absolute truth and it's telling you the reality about everything that you are seeing. And you start to read this and you start to look out there and you go, man, something doesn't add up. And then you recognize, I actually don't belong here. I have no reason to get uncomfortable here because I ain't staying. There's something more. And I would rather, much rather, be building a house of where I'm going rather than investing a house where I am now. It's all this clicking. So when we talk about denying ourselves, taking up our cross, if you read Luke's account of this, he says, take up your cross daily. It's a daily understanding of the idea that I need to be crucifying myself. Now notice that's not some like, oh my gosh, or my mask is my cross to bear. Understand this, our trials are not the cross to bear. The cross that we bear, the cross that we take up, is the new life of Jesus Christ. It's the better option. It's the eternal answers. It's not this here and now. Too often I've seen people read this passage and they take it as discipleship and Christian growth and going after holiness. It's something that's such a burden, but because I want to be sincere and a good Christian and I really want God to love me, then I'm going to go ahead and do it this way. You realize you're trying to earn something that you already have if that's your mentality in that? We can't allow it to be of grace because we think it's still something to be attained. We fully have it, and God says, I want more for you. See, grace grace goes beyond how we think. Grace goes beyond where my mind wants to set a limit. Well, yeah, maybe this much, but no more. No, grace says yes every time. It wants better things for me. It wants better things for you because it's our Father's grace. Notice he says this as well. Take up his cross and follow me. Why? Here's the explanation. For whoever wishes to save, and we get messed up on save. Does that go to heaven when you die? No. Deliver, rescue, redeem, heal. Those are all perfectly useful words to define save. Whoever wants to save his, what's that word, church? Soul. Whoever wants to save his mind, will, and emotions, the immaterial part of him or herself as they've been trained in this world, if that's what you want to hold fast to, if you want to deliver that, look what it says here. You will lose it. The idea here is it will end in ruin. It will end destroyed. It will end perishing. Oh my gosh, that's the lake of fire. No, it's not. It's saying that your life will amount to nothing before the Father. For we must all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, speaking to believers, and give an account for what we have done in the body, whether good. Oh, yes, we love that part. Let's stop reading there. Somebody put a period quick in the English translation. Or what? Bad. Some translations actually say evil. Some translations say worthless. The things that we did that mattered in eternity. And guess what? We're also going to talk to Jesus about the things we did that didn't matter a hill of beans anywhere. We're going to have that conversation. Is he going to send me to hell after that? Well, no. 
You wouldn't be at the judgment seat of Christ if you weren't already redeemed. The fact that you're in his presence is beautiful. He's never going to cast you away. But the question is, you're born again and I gave you new life and I gave you marching orders. I gave you instructions. I gave you everything you needed to live a life that was beyond anything that this world could ever promise or hope for you. You get to do God's will. Never could have done that before. And you can actually see God's work to its completion. You never could have done that before. Guess what? You now have the opportunity to do that. You can do something better with your life by simply submitting it over to Christ and let Christ do that. This is where lordship comes in. It's Christian growth, not Christian birth. So by doing that, guess what? You're now accountable for how you lived your life. How did you steward yourself? How did you use all the wonderful, gracious gifts that God gave to you? How did you invest them? What were you caught up in? What did you live for? How are you going to be known when you die? What will your tombstone read? Am I going to have to lie at your funeral? (laughs) Hey, admitting you have a problem is the first step, right, brother? There you go. Whoever loses his life for my sake, watch this, but whoever loses his soul for whose sake? Think about it. For my sake and the gospels. Why does he bring that up? Because there's your motivation. I'm living my life for the sake of Jesus. I'm living my life for the sake of the gospel. Why? Because I want to be an instrument in his hands that he opens up wide open doors so that I can speak truth into people's life and watch him bring them from death into life. That's what I want to be about. That's how I want to live. I want my life to matter. I want my life to matter. Whoever loses his life, his soul, now in this life, for my sake and the gospels, there's your proper motivation, will save, will rescue it, deliver it, or redeem it. What's interesting is, is Matthew used the word find and found. You will have found your life. You would have found what life really is, is the idea. You will save it in the future. Verse 36, for what does it profit? Now I want you to answer this question. What does it profit? What's the benefit? To a man, if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul, his life, is it a gain? What did you gain? Nothing. Because everything in this life is going to burn up. It's all going to go away. You can't take it with you. Even if you're buried with it, it still doesn't go. It doesn't endure. We are beings that have been created by God with something very unique. We transcend. We transcend life. It's not pay your taxes and die and that's it. It is you die and you're ushered into the presence of the Lord if you know him and you're held in reserve in Hades until the great white throne judgment because Jesus is going to give you a chance to see whether or not you knew him and whether or not your works were good enough to merit eternal salvation in the heavens with him. And I guarantee you that if you end up at the great white throne judgment, that is not going to be your end. You will suffer for eternity in a lake of fire. Why? Because that's the only acceptable place for dead people to go. That's it. We're talking about beyond heaven and hell issues. We're now talking about the quality of life. If you chose to hold fast to your soul in this life, guess what? You'll have Minimum of what eternal life all encompasses in the Father's presence. So if you've gained everything that the world has to offer and you forfeited your life, what do you have? Nothing. You have nothing. Notice it moves on here. I don't think I'm in the right chapter anymore. Verse 36, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul, his life. Verse 37, for what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Does everybody see what Jesus is trying to draw attention to there? You're worth something. You have value. You have weight in glory for eternal reasons. You matter to God. And to sit here and say that something is worth you having less than everything by fulfilling God's purpose and completing his work, 
to say that you wanted less in this situation? How does that even balance on a scale? It doesn't. You're worth so much more in eternity than whatever you think living for the present is going to give you now. It all goes away. You ever notice that the sins that we feel entrapped by are the ones that we always have to return to? Why is that? Because they never satisfy. They never give a lasting answer. Every mosquito bite needs two or three coats of cream, doesn't it? can't just itch it once. That ain't stopping it. You just aggravated more. Trust me, I know. For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? Let me ask you a question. And if you can think of something, write it down. What can you think of? They're saying, you know what, Jesus? I think I just want to get in the door. And I'm content with just being right inside the door. I'm good being there. Here. You, you take this and just, you know, I'm inside the door. That's good. I think I'd much rather live for myself now. So I, I'm inside the door. It's good. I'm across the threshold. Can't lose it. Ha, ha, ha. Right? Kind of get a little prideful about it. But here, instead of growing closer, growing more, having everything that you wish to give to me, having everything that you've got in store for me, not just in this life, but in the life to come, I think I would want to give you this so I don't have to live for that. What is this? Can you think of anything that comes to mind that you could possibly put in God's hands and say, you know what, it's just not worth living for you? I'm curious what the dollar amount on something like that is. I guarantee you not one of us can think of something that is greater to live for than for what God's call on our life is. Now let's finish this. Verse 38. For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... Where is he talking about location-wise? Now. Whoever is ashamed of me now on earth, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. In other words, when he returns to retrieve us. If you were ashamed of Jesus Christ now on the earth, he will be ashamed of you in heaven before his Father. Are you there? Yeah. No well done, good and faithful servant. No commendation. No extra crowns. No robes to wear. No increased glory. No ruling and reigning positions alongside Christ. Those are not for you. Why? Because you are ashamed of him here. Does everybody see, now I want you to pay attention to this, how the idea of being ashamed of Jesus here, how the idea of not living out his purpose here, how the idea of not seeing his work to completion here relates to not only the temporal surroundings that we have, but it's the very definition of what it is for somebody to lose their soul in this life. Does everybody see that? Yes? And so the idea of not being ashamed of him, the idea of saying, you know what, I need to deny what I would want to do. My entire calendar needs to be cleansed Because everything that I'm consumed with is really about me and it's nothing about trying to bring more glory to Jesus or even beginning to let him live his life of light through me for the sake of other people. And so because of what I'm seeing in the word of God and because as a loving father, he is letting me know the consequences should I choose to not obey what he has told me to do. I know what I can expect. But if I choose to obey it, If I choose instead to present my members as instruments of righteousness in this situation, you will actually save your soul. The choice to save your soul is on you, not him. It's all determined upon whether or not as redeemed people, brothers and sisters in Christ, children of God, we will actually believe his word beyond getting our feet inside of the door and instead race to the table so we can sit down and have fellowship with him. Does all this make sense? Because I want to show you two things. One's going to mess you up. The second one, I want you to walk away positive and happy with flowers in your hair, okay? Number one, pay attention to this. After all I've said, and you understand, I'm a staunch believer in eternal security. Absolutely. But notice from Jesus' own words here, it is possible for a Christian to lose their soul. I want you to be aware of this. If you choose to live for yourself, and you, instead of 
giving your mind, will, and emotions over to God to be used instead of presenting your body as an instrument for His purposes, it is actually possible for you to live a worthless life and for you to come into the presence of the Father when it's all over and said and done, be completely saved, be amazed by the fact that He's there, be amazed by the riches of the grace when you actually see them for the first time in real time and have nothing but profound regret for the decisions you made in the here and now. God, I lived for myself. And I'm getting exactly what I earned in this life as your son, as your daughter. That's exactly what this passage says. Notice that Jesus encourages a better way. You think that your agenda is important? It's not. You think the things that you're invested in are important? It's not. Your hobbies are eating up money. Your desires are taking you far away. Jesus wants better. Jesus died for more. Jesus rose for more. For more. Am I trying to make you feel guilty? No. Guilt is not a motivator here. What I'm trying to make you realize is there's blessing beyond understanding that God wants to give and 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 And only his kids get it. But his kids can only get it if they do it his way. Talk about having an authority problem in this whole mass situation. My greater concern is will we deny ourselves? Will we take up a cross? Will we live in the light of all that Jesus has done to give us a new identity in Christ, will we follow Him wherever He leads? Wherever He leads, I'll go. Maybe we need to sing that one. I'll follow my Christ who loves me so. Wherever He leads, I will go. Let me give you one last passage because I can't get it out of my mind. And if I don't give it to you, it'll kill me. It's just a verse. I just want you to see it. Mitch, you don't have this one. Luke 12. Verse 37. Let me just share it with you real quick. For some reason, I can't get it out of my mind. I feel like I would be disobedient if I sat down and didn't share this with you. Luke 12, verse 37. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find. I'm sorry. Blessed are those slaves whom the master will find on the alert when he comes. Truly, I say to you, that he will gird himself to serve and to have them recline at the table. And he will come up and wait on them. This is Jesus. And if we've been faithful in this life, he's actually going to tell us to sit at a table. And he's going to put an apron around himself. Everybody think the foot washing of the disciples? The man who handed him over to death, he still washed his feet well. And he's going to come and serve us? He's going to take my order. What? He's going to put himself in a place of servitude to us. There's everything in me that wants to sit here and say, but my Savior deserves better than that. Why is He doing that? You know why? Because He wants to. Because He loves me. Because He loves you. Because He wants you at that table. Not everybody makes it to the table. I think it's important for you to recognize this. If you try to save your soul in this life, you will lose it. And it's described many different ways through the Scriptures, which we're going to see. But one of the ways it's described, you don't sit at that table. You don't. Why? You weren't faithful. Because Jesus wants to heap condemnation and say, well done, good and faithful servants, for those who did well and were faithful. But you've got to be about His work and to see His work through to the end. It's serious, guys. 
Again, don't leave discouraged. But a blessing like this in verse 37, I can read it. My mind can work the sentence. I will never understand this verse. I will never understand it because of what it tells me. It's beyond my grasp. But it's beautiful. It's full of love. It's pouring forward in grace. Forgive me. But I read this verse four days ago. It slayed me. Makes you step back and think about what am I involved in? What really matters? What are my priorities? That's what God's Word's supposed to do. Let's pray. Father, thank You for being a merciful God. I don't even know if I have the words. But the idea that You would give and give and give that you want to give us more, that you tell us how to attain more, that you've given us everything we need for more, and you champion us and you cheerlead us on to say more, more, more. The idea that you would serve any of us is beyond me. We are called to serve you. But it's just like you to confound our thinking the way that we perceive You, and to correct us with grace. You are good. You are so good. Father, cause our hearts to rejoice that we would be involved in Your will and in Your work, that today would be a day of difference because of the Word of God. We pray it in Your name.